The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf and another podcast. We welcome as our guest today, Father Richard Heilman. Father Heilman is pastor of St. Mary's Church in Pine Bluff, which is a few minutes to the west of Madison, Wisconsin. With three parishes under his care, as well as several other hats that he wears, Father Heilman is a very busy guy. I wanted to talk to him in a podcast because he's doing good things for God and for his people in his parish, and I think his example could be an inspiration for other priests in these very troubling times. Father and I spoke together for quite a while, so I'm going to break our interview into two parts. In part one, which you are about to hear, Father Heilman speaks about an interesting thing that happened at the beginning of his pastorate, and then about the influence of the older, traditional form of Holy Mass and moving his parish to ad orientem worship, and about putting a communion rail in, and several other very interesting things. So here is my chat with Father Richard Heilman, which took place on the 9th of July, 2016. Welcome as our guest today, Father Richard Heilman. Father Heilman is a priest of the Diocese of Madison in Wisconsin, where the extraordinary ordinary reigns supreme, Bishop Morlino. I've written about Father Heilman on the blog quite a few times, so um, now you get an opportunity to hear his very words. Father Heilman, welcome to my podcast. Oh, it's great to be with you. So... First of all, um, tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about yourself, like how long have you been ordained, you sure. know, tell us about your parish, you know, how long you've been there. Okay. So I was ordained in 88, so 28 years this year I was a, uh, I've been a priest, and then at this parish, 12 years. Um, it was shortly after I got to the parish that a strip club opened. and A strip club? Of, yeah. And it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting... Not, there, at, not at the parish. No. 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 <laughs> but almost r- across the street, just a block down at uh, what used to be kind of a mom-and-pop sports bar, you know, as, as wholesome as a sports bar could be with a volleyball court and, you know, ball field and everything. But, um, you know, I'm driving down the street. It was the Friday before Ash Wednesday, and I'm driving down the street, and the signs changed out front. And I'm not even going to quote what the sign said because it was pretty gross. Uh, the name of the club, but anyways, um, all of a sudden, this was thrust upon us. The whole community didn't know about it. It was all done uh, behind closed doors, this arrangement to have this strip club owner come in and uh, take over this uh, this mom-and-pop place. And so <clears throat> I'm laying in bed one night shortly after that, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what do you have in mind bringing me here to this parish when this happened? Because I was only there a few months. And um, then it's just, you know, you get a strong feeling, you know, you don't hear the audible words of God, but you just get a strong feeling. And it's just, you know, uh, 
prayer mile or miracle mile, but mile came to mind. And, and like an idiot, I actually got up out of my bed, uh, went down to my car, set the odometer down to zero, and drove the distance that I pictured in my mind. And when I got up to the place, which is behind our uh, church there, the cemetery, where this huge um, life-size crucifix of our Lord is, it rolled exactly a mile. So I thought, okay, there's something here about this. And then I got some people together, and we discerned together that we were to do the Stations of the Cross, uh, down the street, back up, and then end up back in our cemetery. Of course, the 12th station would be right there at the crucifix. And uh, we did that with about 200 people. And so we had them carry their prayer sheet, and we gave them a white ribbon, but we didn't tell them what that was for until we got to that 12th station. And then we asked them, now, if you would, tie a ribbon off on that 100-year-old kneeler in front of the cross as you would light a candle in church. You know, it's a prayer offering. And, um, and so they did. And then we finished the stations that day, but we invited people to come and pray anytime they wanted to. Um, and so we put this uh, plastic bin out in front of church, at w- which would be the first station. And we actually saw, you know, mothers pushing strollers. We saw groups of people, single people. We saw groups of priests uh, over the weeks and months during that time uh, walking up and down the street, praying the Stations of the Cross, carrying their prayer sheet, carrying their white ribbon. And um, I did that as well, but I did a special prayer offering during that time. If you ever come down um, heading out toward Pine Bluff from Madison, you'll notice what looks like almost a mountain range behind it. Well, that's Blue Mountain State Park. And I was inspired during that time to get up every morning before sunrise and be up on top of what is a fire tower on top of Blue Mountains State Park and be praying over that area um, as the sun rose. You know, so you're, 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 you're literally facing east, okay? And, uh, and, and beyond my um, little town there is Madison. You can see that in the distance. But I would see the sliver of sun come up, and I'd be praying during that time. And, well, I don't know the exact amount of time. I think it was seven or eight months later. And actually, let me back up a second. I did that from April until October, and I think I missed four mornings. Um, but I, I, I would get up there every morning and pray in that way. But <laughs> I, I, I can't recall how many months total it was that the strip club was there, but um, I think it was seven or eight. And then all of a sudden, uh, it was gone. You know, one thing led to another, and uh, the strip club closed, and it was gone. And so uh, shortly after that, I asked, I, I felt like we needed to build on this. And so I asked a, a handful of men, I think it was about 10 or 12 guys, if, the, if we could have a meeting now on that site where the strip club was, we asked the new owners now if we could do that, and they, they, they said. And so we went into the room, actually, where the strip club or where strippers were, and we could actually, actually see the, uh, the plate in the ceiling that held the pole. They hadn't, didn't take that out yet. So we positioned this table that we brought over underneath that plate, and, uh, and then we got out the blessed salt, the holy water, and the prayers of the church, and we went around there, and we exercised and blessed the place and reclaimed uh, surrendered ground back to the Lord. And we sat down and had our first meeting of the Knights of Divine Mercy that day. 
surrendered ground back to the Lord. It's kind of militaristic, you're saying. It is. <laughs> so, um, is, was this the birth of the group that you have called the yes. Knights of Divine Mercy? Yes. We, we, had, um, we had talked around, but we didn't have an official meeting until, until that day. And um, you're right about the militaristic language. I'm not afraid of using it. I have great a- admiration for the people who, who go ahead of us and put themselves in harm's way. And um, they inspire me, and I know they inspired a lot of people, especially men. But uh, we're in spiritual warfare right now, and there's, there's just no way around looking at that. And, um, you know, we need to raise up, uh, and I say especially men, because I think our men have been um, uh, <clears throat> diminished during this period of time in our church, in our, in our culture. And um, we need to call them to uh, raise arms against the devil, you know, uh, and, and so this is really a, a spiritual warfare. Uh, the, the scripture passage that I keep falling back to to describe what we're about here is Ephesians six ten, where it says, "Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power." You know, in His mighty power, right? Uh, put a, uh, put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the devil because we're not fighting flesh and blood here; we're fighting dark forces in the supernatural realm. So it's, it's helping um, men to understand that. It's helping men to know what God has given us uh, as tools, as weapons, uh, what resources we have at our disposal to actually do spiritual warfare, to stand against these, um, these insidious forces in our times that are uh, diminishing men, yes, but diminishing our, our our culture and our church. Just really quickly, what do you think some of these insidious forces are? Could you put a name to a few of them? I think the first one is secularism, only because we have been... When you say secularism, do you mean what? Do you mean the... I mean, for example, I I can assume that you mean the pushing of God out of the public square? Exactly. Well, and I would use it as a synonym for for something like anti-supernatural, or a um, uh, a, a you know uh, decrying, if you will, of the supernatural. I think that we've gone through that not only as a culture but inside our church as well, uh, where we <laughs> the way I describe it too is that I th- I, I think a lot of um, Catholic Christians in our time uh, feel like we're some kind of uh, transcendent generation, you know, that we, that we somehow have arrived and we somehow now know better than all of our ancestors that have gone before us. And the way I look at it, I say, we look back at our ancestors and, and you know, we say, well, you know, you're good people and you meant well, uh, but you really didn't know any better, much like we look back at people who believe the earth was flat at one time, you know. And so there's this um, almost an arrogance, I think, of our times that that um, you know that, that we we understand better now that there that the supernatural is something our ancestors believe, but but we're not to believe that. Anymore. Isn't this one of the fruits of modernism? Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's absolutely. A, modernism being the reduction of the supernatural, exactly. the natural. The, uh, I noticed earlier your use of transcendent in a different kind of way, mm-hmm. a different sense, but it's the the reduction of the transcendent to the imminent, exactly, right? Exactly, okay. exactly. 
This is certainly one of the one of the big problems we face. Um, and it seems to me, I mean, look, I, as I as I have gotten to know you over the years, you're so busy. You've got more than one uh, church within the you know boundaries of the parish that's been entrusted to you. I mean, you have like how many masses on Sunday? Like five masses yeah. or something? It's ridiculous. And uh, but you've got all these other projects going too. You have not only the Knights of Divine Mercy, which is something that that people should understand. It's a, uh, something that regularly meets. I mean, how many guys are involved in this now in the parish? By oh, the way? boy. Well, we have over 400 on our mailing list. Wow. But when we gather together uh, once a month, and that's actually from September to May, um, we give the guys the summer off to go barbecue. But um, <clears throat> uh, we have uh, we, we probably average well over 100 guys that, that meet regularly. Um uh, for that, and some guys can make it some nights, some others, but you know we average about a hundred guys. Mm-hmm. And this, and these meetings involve a, a talk, the opportunity for confession, a holy so, mass. Yep. Well, uh, not mass. Uh, we actually tried that for a couple of years, but we just felt it was it was too much. Uh, but it started out, and now it's back to what it was. Is, is the format is is we start out with uh, uh, exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. So we we were. Uh, lead the men into um, adoration during that time. And w- we actually start out too now. We have a beautiful men's scola that sings and chants. Um, and they lead us in solemn vespers at the beginning of this. Um, but during that adoration time, there's an opportunity for confession. We usually have several priests that, that come and help with the 100 guys. And it's like all of them come, <laughs> all the men come to confession. Um, but then I'd say about halfway through that adoration time, which is about an hour and a half long. I always call it not a holy hour, but it's more like 90 minutes. Uh, then we have a speaker, and usually a priest, almost always a priest, that gives the men some um, topic on something to do with um, holiness and uh, better understanding of their faith. And it's always excellent. It's always inspirational. And then after that, uh, we do the uh, uh, we actually do the Divine Mercy Chaplet just before the talk, and then we end with um, a- after the talk we do benediction. So, um, and it's and we have you know these uh, amazing servers who are just precise, and we have uh, incense, and the church is lit low with lots of candles. And servers, can I? This, these are altar boys, right, and men. Yeah, that, well, actually, uh, sometimes we have younger younger men do it, but oftentimes it's adult men that are, are altar servers during mm-hmm. this. You don't have altar girls at your parish, do you? No, uh, and, and actually, by the grace of God, I, that just kind of naturally happened. You mm-hmm. know, I think people just understood that it's better uh, to have uh, all men, all male servers in that parish. Yeah, little common sense, yeah. spiritual common sense. So you've got the Knights of Divine Mercy, but you're also involved with another group of knights, aren't you? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm the state chaplain for the Knights of Columbus. And okay, that doesn't keep you busy at all, yeah, does right. it? Yeah, right. Well, I joked that I thought I was just going to be a figurehead, but I guess not. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, it's got me pretty busy. But um, so you're traveling around uh, the whole state, and yeah. Well, that. one of the things that we started, is, uh, I took the reins after uh, Bishop Hying was moved to um, Gary, Indiana, and uh, he he was. Uh, it's a two year term, and he was one year in before he got moved, 
And so they asked me to do it, and that, that year just ended this year. So I'm going into now a full, they're, giving, they're re-upping me to do a full term for these two years. Um, what they wanted, the state officers, is what we're, what we're doing. They, they wanted to help the men with um, you know, faith formation. They also wanted to help them. Uh, they, they understand, too, praise God, that <coughs> with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, you know, we can't move out unless we're, I like to say, supernaturalized, or we're in that state of grace. We have the power of God, like Ephesians 6.10 says, on us to move out. And we're convinced now that this, this format that we have right now uh, that we're using uh, goes a long way to do that, uh, certainly through the sacrament of confession in that moment that absolution is prayed over that repentant sinner that in that moment their, 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 their soul is made clean and pure and they receive the bountiful grace of God. And, and so now, confident that God has restored them, they can move out under the power of God. And so adoration as well elevates our sense of the majesty and glory of God. And it, it does it in a, 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 a profound way. You know, I think um, we look at the Mass today now, I pray the Novus Ordo almost entirely. I have learned the, the Latin Mass. But, um, but, I, but I look at the Novus Ordo, and uh, I, I think it's a little busy. Um, and I think we're heading in a good direction to kind of help that. But I think of the story of Martha and Mary, you know, that uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity was in their living room, you know. And there's two approaches to that. Let's, let's hurry and let's do the noble and gracious hospitality tasks Let's get busy because he's here. The other one was Mary, and she just stopped. She just stopped. And she sat at the feet of Jesus, and she hung on his every word. And she was actually in adoration. I like to say she was marinating, you know. But she was. She was soaking in what our Lord wanted to give her. And, um, and I think the Mass for many centuries resembled more of what Mary did when the Lord was in their living room than it did what Martha. And I think, you know, I think a lot, a lot of the Novus Ordo today is very busy, you know, and, and so it doesn't give us the opportunity to, to kind of stop, absorb, you really take in that this is God right here. Uh, so adoration is especially important in our time. I think it's always been important. But I think it's especially important in our time because that is that opportunity to just you know, adore, just be still and, and be in his presence. You said that you have learned uh, the Latin Mass. You mean the traditional Latin Mass, mm-hmm. extraordinary form, right? Right. Um, how has saying the old Mass affected your view of Mass and your priesthood and your, your place at the altar? Has it has it affected you at all? I can't begin to describe how it's affected me. Um, I think as a priest, I, I always believed that that was the real presence of our Lord. Um, but I, I don't know if I would took that as serious as I needed to up until I learned the traditional Latin Mass. And... Uh, it's had a profound effect on me since then uh, because there's, uh, at least for me, people, you know, other priests can give their own story, but at least for me, 
it elevates my sense of uh, the seriousness of, of what's going on there. And so, uh, the, you know, the attention to precision and, and uh, you know, th- th- that, um, uh, that things be just so and, and uh, that beautiful uh, uh, ancient language of Latin that is spoken that, that we're, uh, you know, we're, we're in uh, union with, with all, all ages as we speak that. I mean, um, just everything about it, uh, I, I, I like to say it elevated my game. You know, it just, it brought a new seriousness uh, to my um, call to be, to offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Well, and, you know, I, I help at your parish, so I, I'm very familiar with your, your church and, the, and the, the changes, some of the changes that you've made, some pretty dramatic changes, as a matter of fact. Um, now, you've got a, it's a little country parish, a little country church, and for the most part, it wasn't recovated right. after, after uh, Vatican II was left. And mid, some people may not know this, but in the Midwest, uh, dotted all over the countryside, there are these churches that were, you know, with beautiful carved wooden altars and so forth. Um, and uh, you ha- that has been restored, and it's uh, regilded and cleaned, and it's you've got lovely statues. And but you made a couple of changes uh, yourself. Now back in, I wrote about this back in January of. 2013, I posted some really fun photos of guys hauling your table altar, the ironing board, as I like to call it, <laughs> out of out of your church, right? Right. So talk about that a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in this right now, especially because Cardinal Seurat recently at a conference on liturgy that just, just took place in London made an urgent appeal to all priests everywhere beginning with Advent, to begin celebrating Holy Mass um, ad orientem. And uh, with everybody facing the same direction, in case you know, you're know you listening and you don't know what ad orientem is. And, uh, of course, now you can't do that. You can't follow uh, Cardinal uh, Seurat's advice to begin this in Advent, because you're already doing it, right? Yeah. So now tell me about... The, tell me about that. Your decision, on the process, did you do catechesis? What has been the effect? Talk about that. Expand. expand. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I have to give props to you because uh, I've been an avid reader of your blog for many years. And uh, you would highlight certain things along the way. And there were things that made me go, hmm, you know. It made me think. It made me dig a little deeper myself. Uh, you pointed me to, um, you know, things such as uh, Pope Benedict and Cardinal Ratzinger's um, Spirit of the Liturgy. <coughs> we actually saw um, uh, Bishop, uh, or I'm sorry, Pope Benedict actually celebrating in the Sistine Chapel ad orientum. And uh, so I did a little dig- digging myself during that time, and and I become became more and more aware that uh, that this wasn't really called for by um, the documents of Vatican II, that this was actually a, an innovation that came later that just kind of caught on like wildfire across the world, and to understand even in the ritual that we have today, 
that it, it actually um, it's designed for Adorantum uh, offering the Mass. And so all of this together, and you, you got to kind of understand me, though, too, is um, I had a great father. I had a great dad. And uh, he, he had t- I think he had two slogans that stick in my mind. One was, uh, live life to the fullest. Okay? And, but the other one was uh, just one word. He said, respect. And I had so many um, uh, debates with him, you know, that, well, what about love? You know, sure, he said, but respect comes first. And I look back on it now and I, I say, what he was trying to say is, how can you really claim love unless you have respect? So what does respect mean when he was trying to drill that into us? It means respect authority, you know, respect tradition, uh, respect uh, antiquity. Uh, respect, um, uh, you know, what has been handed down to you. Respect all of that. You know, just don't, just don't be too quick to uh, dispose of any of that. Um, all of this, uh, I think, together uh, led me to understand that we need to do uh, the Mass the way it had been done and, uh, and was not intentionally made to change. So um, what I did, and I knew I was a lone soldier at the time. I think the situation now with Cardinal Sarah is a little different because hopefully there will be other, uh, many other uh, uh, examples of people celebrating Adorientum to support one priest's desire to do so. But what I did is I took a year to, and I celebrated Adorientum at the Daily Mass. And during that year as well, I spent a lot of time catechizing and you know, saying this is why you know uh, the church had done it this way, and this is this is why it's more. Important. Okay, let me get this straight. So, the at that point, the table altar is still there in the right. middle of the sanctuary. Right. But in your daily mass, you're saying mass adorantem. Right. And, and but at Sundays, you would be back at the table right. altar, saying mass versus populum. Right. right. Okay. All right. And we had the high altar, so basically, we left the uh, table. Um, Alone, and we would go up to the high altar for the daily mass. Um, and then I just discerned that the, I think the people are ready, and I want to do this. And uh, and I got a lot of support uh, from a lot of a lot of parishioners, but I knew it was going to be problematic for some of them. And I, you know, I don't I don't disparage uh, people. I, I, listen, I think that a lot of people were what I called programmed. Uh, to believe that you know it should be one way, and I think a lot of those people are kind of my age and older, where you know they were around when the, all these changes came. And your you, age? Now, how old are you? I'm 58. Okay. So they were around when all these changes came, and you know, understand that uh, at that time, and I think still uh, to a large degree today, uh, if the church said you do something, you do it. You know, and so they. They didn't question it, you know, by and large, at least the ones that stayed. You so know. you're talking about changes, the liturgical changes right. that began in the wake of the council exactly. of the Second Vatican Council, mm-hmm. right? So they just they just have, you know, were were pushed on them for one thing, right. and they just said, "Well, okay, I guess that's the way it's supposed to so be." If that's what the Vatican wants. And now they're you're saying the program that they're like stuck in that mode. Is that yeah, what you're yeah. I you know I think it's I think it's difficult for them to say. 
to any degree at all that the church may have made a mistake about that? Because how can you not come to that conclusion where for this many years we've been doing it versus populum, and now we're deciding, no, that that it was better to go back the other way. So I think it's harder for them to, to admit such a thing. Um, and so... So I have a lot of compassion for them, uh, and I try my best. And I move slow, and I, I, uh, I do my. I, you know, I'm always charitable. <clears throat> but when I made the change, uh, many of them decided to go to local parishes and worship uh, instead of ours. So, uh, so you lost a bunch of people when you made yeah, the change. Yeah, I don't so, know about now, a bunch. How well would you say? How many, like percentage-wise? I mean, was, uh, fifteen to twenty. Fifteen to twenty percent decided yeah. to go elsewhere. Yeah, okay. because of the, because of this change to right, and virtually all of them were my age or older, mm-hmm. which is an interesting phenomenon. And well, I'm, I'm working on then, theories. Did you then pick up more, or? Well, yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, we started getting one young family after another, and it just it just kept coming and coming and coming. And uh, it, it, we, we just couldn't believe it. I want to back up just a little bit, too, because um, it's interesting to note that before I did that change, uh, we were also kind of financially, we were okay, but we were, you know, that was during that, you know, that post-2008 period where yeah. everybody was kind of struggling. And they wanted to do this big campaign, you know, uh, for uh, asking people to give more money. I said, wait, let's do, let's do this first. And um, so... The finance commi- uh, committee agreed to that. So um, all these young families start coming in. I lost, you know, some of my old guard, but uh, all these young families start coming in. Well, after year's end, we looked at the finances and we were up thirty percent in one year. Wow! Okay. And the average age of my parish went from about sixty-five years old to about thirty-five years old. Uh, in the first year of that change to Ad Orientum. Yeah, my experience of saying Mass there, um, both the traditional Mass and the Novus Ordo, is, uh, you know, I look, I turn around and I look look at people out there and I see a lot of young faces, yeah, yeah. young families with lots of kids. and uh, It's a sea of babies. Yeah, it, it can sound sometimes a little like daycare in there, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <That's Yeah. right. laughs> but uh, now, this isn't the only thing that you've done, though, as far as... Um, you've added a, a couple of other things, right? So, for many years, even prior to this, uh, I did. I, you know, if you look at the teaching of the church, we have the option of standing or kneeling. So, if it's an option, why would we make people go all the way down to a cold floor? Listen, I'm a bigger guy. You know, it's hard for me to navigate going all the way down, both knees to the floor, without bracing myself to get back up. How many people have knee issues? How many people are elderly? And so, I just simply said. Let's at least accommodate them. And so I, w- I put out the wedding kneeler uh, for them. Uh, for many years I've been doing now that. Now you're talking about for communion time, right? Right, right. So then uh, we just discerned that many people were now choosing the kneeler. Why not put the communion rail back in where it was? So you take out the table altar and you put in a communion rail. Right. Uh, gosh, it sounds like you're turning the clock back, Father. <laughs> well, a lot of people... So, so people, you know, how did they take to that? Um, by and large, they loved it. They absolutely love it, and we get tons of comments that are positive. Um, 
<clears throat> and frankly, I, I know that there's a negative element, element out there, but they're not vocal about it because I think they are overwhelmed by such the, so much positive that they're not part of the majority, if you will, that would... Um, so it's been really good. Well, I've, I mean, since I've been saying Mass for you, there, uh, I have noticed that uh, virtually everyone who is physically able to kneel... They kneel at the communion right. rail, and uh, at least in the masses that I celebrate, right. everyone receives right. Holy Communion directly on the tongue. Right, and so it's very traditional, even for the the Novus Ordo, and we just go back and forth. It is, matter of fact, it has made uh, and this won't surprise people. To, you know, you're coming from me, but I think that it ha- that there is a, a a deeply increased experience of uh, reverence, oh, yeah. uh, the respect to which you were referring earlier, and adoration, and uh, it's a it's a marvelous thing, really. Uh, what well, you what could, you've accomplished there. You, well, thanks. Um, I think it's the Lord. I, I, it, listen, let me say this: that I want to love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. But I do believe that the evidence of that is obedience, and I, I'm just a firm believer in that. And um, and so I want to. Not only obey, but obey well. And if, if for instance, the church specifically says that it's an option to kneel or stand, then I want to obey well. I want to uh, grant the option of kneeling by accommodating that. Now, of course, the the uh, Conference of Bishops in these United States has said that um, uh, standing and all that business is the norm. Of course, norm can mean you know more than one thing. It can be prescriptive, in other words, what you have to do. But it can, a norm can also be descriptive. I mean, if they say this is the norm, it means that that's what people happen to be doing. The Holy See, however, some years ago, um, still during the time of John Paul II, uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued a document called Redemptione Sacramentum, in which it said that people's right to kneel must never be interfered with. So you're giving them the option to do that, and you do it partly out of concern that it's a little hard for people just to kneel down if there's nothing to support them, right? So you gave them a a communion rail, and everyone is just choosing to use it. Exactly. You know, again, when you look at obedience, and I I know you're talking about the USCCB, um, I... I look at, at the time, I looked at Pope Benedict, and he was offering uh, a kneeler, and, and, and he was offering communion that way. He was encouraging it. Well, that's the Pope. Uh, and I also know... No, well, people would say, you know, Francis <clears throat> would never do what Benedict was doing. Yes, and he so, is. Well, 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 we'll, notice, we'll notice that, that Francis doesn't distribute communion, yeah. which is interesting. Right. But uh, so that that's not... <laughs> but but he's professed in several occasions that he's on board liturgically with Pope Benedict. And, and uh, Well, he told Cardinal Seurat right. when he appointed him as prefect of divine worship that he wanted him to continue the, exactly. the liturgical reform as inspired by Benedict XVI. Exactly, right? exactly. So you're consistent. You're being consistent. Right, so my, my first allegiance is to the Pope, you know, and then... My second, I believe, is my own bishop. I think I'm just an appendage of my own bishop, you know. And so I, I felt, 
I talked with him a few times, and he was affirmative. <clears throat> but I felt that um, he wanted this. You know, he wants more reverence in the Mass. He's shown that and talked about it in many occasions. And so I, I, I feel like, being the appendage of the bishop, that, that I'm doing what, what I feel he, he wants to do. Now, would you recommend this to other priests then? Because some priests out there, you know, their bishops would not <laughs> be and, and honestly, favorable. If, so. if I had that bishop too, I would I would obey him. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if he told you, uh, if he told you, out. don't put it, you know, don't put any other out. Get rid of the communion rail. You know, yeah, put a table altar back I in. That, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I would pray for that bishop and those priests that. Um, you know, can't move yet, but um, but you have to obey. You know, mm-hmm. So, but <clears throat> I think there's many many bishops out there that have the mind and heart of Bishop Marlino, and are not only okay but um, with uh, offering the accommodation of a of a kneeler. But you know, yeah. they would be happy to see it happen. And, you know, it could be that also some uh, priests and maybe even bishops are a little timid in this regard. Right. They need some encouragement. Right. Um, your experience has been very positive right. and very encouraging. Right. Um, would you have any, any tips uh, for the ones who really think that they probably could move ahead, but they're just wavering? I mean, what would you say to them? Well, a lot of catechesis. I did, I did a lot of that. Um, you know, I kind of... I, I, I drew out, you know, how, how did it come about, you know, and I, I wanted to make it explicit that this, see, I think a lot of our people uh, think that everything that happened after Vatican II was actually written about in Vatican II, and, and so you're kind of helping them to understand that that's not the case. Like getting rid of Latin, right? turning the mass around, right. Right. getting rid of kneeling, right? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, you know, none of which was asked for by the by right. The I, you know, they got busy lives. They're taking care of their family, their job, and everything. They don't have time, I guess, to really sit and read a whole you know document of Vatican II, and and they just put two and two together. Vatican II happened. Changes happened. Must have been called on by Vatican II, um, and so you're kind of re- deprogramming them in a sense, um, and you have to do that gently. And over time, with good catechesis, and uh, and also understanding that you know, even with all that, you're still going to have people that are going to uh, rebel against that. Uh, yeah. They're just so fixated, and you just have to be okay with that. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, you have to be okay with people disagreeing right with you. Right. But uh, then you have to man up and, and right. do what you think is right. That was the first part of my interview with Father Richard Heilman. Part 2 will be posted soon. Until next time, please pray for me as I will for you.